We are, uh, we're, we're in a series called Present Future. You can see it on the screen. The, the image that you're seeing on the screen on the left is a tree that is, is flowering, but not fully in bloom. It's, uh, it's, it's an adolescent tree, if you will. And the side on the right is fully flowering, fully in bloom. That is what we aim at. We're a, a youngish church at about six years old. And so over the last, um, over the last six weeks, this is the seventh, we've been just covering our values as a church family. You can see them up on this banner here to my right. We've been just trying to unpack who we are, what we want to be about as a church. And and this morning, uh, I have just kind of a a one-off message that ties into this present future series intentionally, and it's called People of Consequence. It's a word to our men and women. Do you consider yourself to be a person of consequence? Is that true of you? Do you consider yourself to be a person of consequence? Do you, do you know what I mean by that? It's an old-fashioned uh, phrase. We typically think of consequences as, okay, I've done something bad, and now I get consequences. I get bad things that, that come as a result of my actions. But a person of consequence is one who has earned and deserves respect because of what they are, and or what they have done because of their character. A person of consequence is one who has character and integrity. They've accomplished some things. They have an ethical system that they live by. Perhaps they've been good and kind to others. And so the way that I, that's a person of consequence in general, and I'm using the term in a specific way this morning as a person of consequence is one who is a description of a person who bears good fruit through a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, a person of ultimate consequence. So to be a person of consequence is to sequence together Important attitudes, important behaviors, important beliefs together in such a way that it accurately corresponds with who God is. It corresponds to what God is like. A person of consequence in this this definition, one who, who rightly shows forth the character of God, not only shares what God is like through our words, but also shows what God is like in our human limitations. Yes, but we show forward what God is like. So this person, he or she, is an ambassador of sorts, growing in desire and skill to help people be reconciled to God. Are you hearing me? That is an ultimate person of consequence or a person of ultimate consequence. People of consequence are people of conviction. They're those who are not living for themselves only, but those who feel a strong desire and a sense of responsibility for people and also to people. Strong sense of responsibility for people underneath you, people who you bear responsibility for, but also you recognize that you are responsible to people. Maybe you are a person in and under authority. Maybe there are people coming after you, children or generations that you feel a certain kind of responsibility to, and therefore you live your life in in light of that. Now, it uh, it is rare for a person of consequence to refuse authority. 
It's, it should be rare for a person of consequence to refuse to be a person under authority. But a person of ultimate consequence embraces honorable authority and lives under it gladly. Now, there, are, there is authority in this world, we know this, that is dishonorable. And so that raises some questions for us about how we live under dishonorable authority. And yet there is ultimate authority that we would assert, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we live under his authority gladly as his people. God's people, the church, people in previous generations have had this love-hate relationship with being people of consequence. God's people have invited all kinds of consequences upon ourselves, right? And have at very few times lived well under his rule. At very few times in human history, we have lived well under the rule of God. Uh, You may have heard this quote from me before. C.S. Lewis uh, says this. He says, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. It's a pretty good synopsis of human history. We see it from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the sweep of uh, right up until Revelation 20 and 21 as God puts all things right, makes all things right. The Old Testament book of Judges, I know this feels random to you, can be an exceptional help to you and I if we'll have ears to hear. Overall, it is the long, terrible story of God's people looking for someone other than God to make them happy. That's ultimately what the book of Judges teaches us. It's, I think, the seventh book in your Old Testament. It comes right after Joshua. Chapter 1 starts out all right. Moses has transitioned the leadership of God's people. He freed God's people out of Egypt. He led them through the wilderness right up to the promised land, the land called Canaan. And then Moses died and Joshua led God's people into Canaan. And the book of Judges starts with Joshua giving the people of Israel some commands to continue with the conquest of Canaan. But by chapter two, (laughs) Joshua dies and the wheels come off entirely. This whole nation, the story of Judges, this whole na- the whole nation of Israel descends into this spiral of moral and national chaos. The health and the direction of the nation of Israel was determined by the health and the choices and the lifestyles of her individual members. The people bore responsibility for themselves and according to their actions, according to their integrity, according to their character, according to their worship of other gods, the entire nation was led astray. And and the book of Judges, it ends in chapter 21, verse 25, with this editorial comment. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it's this tragic period on the time, this period of the judges right before the king. So judges is setting up the coming of 
King Saul and Israel and the monarchy, a united monarchy, King Saul, King David, and then King Solomon. And the people of Israel were governed and ruled by these judges. They were kind of like prophets who, who helped to, to guide the nation in really large matters, but really it was a, a tribal system. And so all of these tribes are kind of finding their way. They're in some ways leaderless, but God continued to shepherd the people of Israel. In those days, there's no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This line haunts me. It's been haunting me for months, probably because I've lived it. For a period of 10 years or longer, I did whatever promised me pleasure. I did whatever was right in my own eyes. And, and, and after 10 plus years, I came to this pretty dark place. There were times in my story where I didn't want to live anymore. There were times in my story, absolutely, where I was using people and uh, the things, the filth coming out of my mouth or going into my body was incredible. I felt completely alone. That was like the moment that I knew I was at the bottom. I was surrounded by people, had party friends, but I, I wasn't known. And I, I certainly didn't feel loved especially at a human level, by the people around me. My life brought about a, an abundance of consequences and an abundance of regret. And, and, and I understand that the Lord has redeemed these things. Like, who in the world would think that I would have a privilege of being able to teach the Bible to a group of people who love Jesus and love one another pretty dang well? So I understand that God has redeemed quite a bit of my story. And when I look back on the things that I've said and the things that I've done, I still feel the sting of regret. I still feel the sting of regret. It doesn't mean that God has not redeemed it. It just means that I'm, there's, when I think of the things that I've said and the things that I've done, there's a kind of shame that, that tries to push in and tries to teach me a, a lesson and it's probably true for some of you too. You have, had, you, you, you have stories. You have history. And you see, maybe he's delivered you like, you, like life has not ever been better, but at one time in your life, it was insanely dark. This is because so often, not, ever, not all of the time, no way, but it's... it's it, it, Actually, I'm going to correct my sentence. It is because people are doing what is right in their own eyes that we have suffered incredible pain. It's not always at our own hands. Sometimes it's at the hands of other people. I want you to hear that loud and clear. Yesterday I was reading Judges chapter 2, um, verses 11 through 16. I want to, I want to read that. Judges is in the uh, Old Testament. It's the seventh book from the front right after Joshua, Joshua chapter 2, verses 11, uh, I'm sorry, Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. I'll actually start up in verse 10. Um, it says, and all that generation of Israel were also gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, Yahweh, or the work that he had done for Israel. 
Verse 11 says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. This is a, a Canaanite a male god of storm and fertility. Often in his renderings, he's pictured with two clubs in his hands, one in each hand. So you can understand what kind of a god he is to the people. The people of Israel abandoned the Lord, Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. They submitted to them. They worshiped them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. He expressly said they should not do this just earlier in chapter 2. They abandoned the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Asherah was a female Canaanite God as well. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold Israel into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord Yahweh was against them for harm as he had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Notice that line terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And so we see this blessing and this benefit of a a redeemer, kinds of redeemers coming. Yesterday, as I was reading Judges 2, 11 through 16, I realized that just as God had done this for me, a wayward and unfaithful man, he has done for an entire people group, the people of Israel, at this period in redemptive history, but he had been doing it prior, and he continues to do it throughout the story of the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament, all the way through human history until the present day. And as I'm studying the the Old Testament, I'm seeing in fresh ways just how unfaithful people are and how faithful God is. It's continuous in the scriptures. I'm seeing how constant I am in my rebellion and how loyal God is in his holiness. And as I'm learning about him through the Bible, I'm growing more and more confident in him. It's just a a, a word for you, church, to engage the scriptures, to not be afraid of the questions that they bring up in you. So often I'm learning this in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was designed by her writers not to answer every question as as a learning device, to move us to ask the questions and to consider in more deep ways than if the questions or the answers were just provided for us wholesale. By God's grace, I'm growing simultaneously in confidence in what he's doing in me and also what he's doing through me as I'm being humbled and, and, and recognizing how often I rebel against him. And so praise be to God. That's the result. It's right to assume, I think, that most of you in the room too, or maybe I'll just ask the question, is it right for me to assume that the majority of you want to be men and women of consequence, youth of consequence, whose lives matter, who live ethically. In the term, like I defined it earlier, who who ultimately want to live under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. To live into God's purposes for you. We have ideas of what's most important according to God, right? As the church. Um, 
It's to, if you could sum it up in a nutshell, it's to love him, it's to love others. Yet for most people in the world, they are the ones who identify, they are the ones who define, they are the ones who decide what is most important to them and for them or most consequential. And so we feel this, don't we? Off everyone goes in the world doing what is right in their own eyes. We're feeling the effect of this in the world that we're living in. In the nation that we're living in, yes. But in the world that we're living in, we're feeling this kind of uh, humanitarian chaos as people are consistently grasping for meaning, for power, for control. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Making it up as we go, living according to what is right in our own eyes, it's a modern problem for all people, just like it was an ancient problem for Israel in the time of the judges. And so you and I are just as in danger of this as they were. Do you hear this? Yes, we follow the Lord Jesus and our hearts are constantly wandering. We are just as in danger in a daily way of doing what's right in our own eyes as they were. There will be consequences if we are not people of consequence. So doing what's right in our own eyes, it, 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 it increases the chaos of our world, it diminishes relational beauty and unity, and it causes, like I said earlier, the majority of pain in the world. It's the fruit of pride. People doing what's right in their own eyes. You and I are not designed to be the captains of our own destiny. You are not designed to be the captain of your destiny. You are not the one for that task. We are designed by the captain of our destiny and given purpose by him. Our opportunity that he has presented to us is to fulfill our maker's purpose for his world. And his purpose for you and I is to bring to light his attributes like order and truth, beauty, goodness, justice, unity, mercy, and more. You could think of the fruit of the Spirit. That's some of the opportunity that we have to bring forward love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Our opportunity as wholehearted disciples is to share and to show the real Jesus to a world who is grasping at false alternatives. That's an opportunity before you and I. That's an opportunity before this church family is to share with our words and to show with our lives and lifestyles the real Jesus to a world who is grasping at false alternatives. And so if we're going to give ourselves to be wholehearted disciples, if we are going to give ourselves at wholehearted discipleship, we need to identify the false alternatives, yes, which will come as we get clear on a few fundamental questions. And so some questions that I want to ask you to ask yourself this morning are, one, why am I here? Two, who then am I in light of that? And three, what then am I to do in light of that? So why am I here? 
Can you answer this question with confidence? Can you answer this question with a kind of clarity? A man becomes a man of consequence by knowing why he is alive, why he exists in the first place. A woman becomes a woman of consequence by knowing why she is alive, why you are alive, why you exist in the first place. A youth becomes a youth of consequence by knowing why you are alive, why you exist in the first place. Can you answer that question with confidence? I'm not talking about humanity in general either. I'm talking about you. The person in your clothes, in your seat right now. You can't escape. I'm talking about you. Why are you here? Before anything else, what is God seeking of you? What is his baseline invitation to you? Can you answer with specificity? I am here because. I want to give you a hint. And I want to ask you in some way, if you're taking some notes or if you've got something to write on or you just want to grab a bulletin or a connect card out of the seat back in front of you and there's a pen there, I want you to just write this down. I am here because dot, dot, dot. Listen to this scripture recorded by Luke of the Apostle Paul speaking to a group of philosophers at a place called the Areopagus or Mars Hill in Greece. He said this, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. Why are you here in light of that text? You're looking at it on the screen. Why are you here in light of that text? You are here to seek God. You are here to find, to ask questions and to pursue, to feel your way toward him. He has first revealed himself to you and then to find him. If you can identify the target of why you exist, there's a natural next question, who then am I? Who then am I? If that's why God has created you, to feel your way toward him, to seek him, to find him, who then are you? At a fundamental level, there are two different answers to this question. Two different answers. For those who overtly reject God, by doing what is right in your own eyes, you are not a son or daughter of God. Instead, the wrath of an almighty, the almighty God is aimed at you. So at the end of your days, you will come to him trembling and you will bow before him as everyone who has ever lived will bow before him and you will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you will not feel relief. You will not find relief. You will be filled with regret, and you will be filled with anguish for the way that you used your life and despised the salvation that was offered to you in Christ Jesus. For those who relent, for those who recognize that God is God and you are human, who confess that you're created by God 
but prone to wandering and prone to straying and rejecting him. Yet even in spite of this rebellion, your Father in heaven has invited you to trust his Son, Jesus, with the direction of your life and all of the details of your life. And as you have done so and seek to do so poorly, yes, like me, you, because of Christ Jesus, are now a new creation. And this reality, this truth that you who have, who have called out to Jesus Christ for salvation, for to, to receive his mercy, this reality is now declared to you every day, if you will have ears to hear it, by his spirit who he has graciously given you, who comes to you on a regular basis to teach you to remind you of the words of Jesus, to strengthen you, to counsel you, and to comfort you. And so as you have come to Christ with the empty hands of nothing but faith, you are a saint who has been saved from the penalty of your sin by Jesus Christ. That's what's true. You have been saved from the penalty of everything that you have done and all of God's wrath. And you have been saved not by your actions or your deeds, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and honor and praise forever and ever. And you are a saint who is being saved from the power of your sin by the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that sin and flesh and self-direction and selfishness is, though it's hard to see at times, losing sway over you. You are being liberated in the moment and for all of the moments to come. A saint. And you are a saint who will be saved from the presence of sin entirely, yours and others, by the Lord Jesus. You are not known to God as a sinner, but as a saint made new in Christ Jesus. Amen. This, this scripture captures views from both sides of this fence. The Apostle Paul writing to a Corinthian church, they were, they were church gone wild. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. Everything that we have received is from him and he's reconciled us to himself through Christ and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and he has committed the message of reconcil reconciliation to us. So who then are you? Are you reconciled to God and therefore a new man, a new woman in Christ Jesus? Or are you unreconciled and therefore a child of wrath whose trespasses against God will be held against you? Can you answer the question with specificity? Make a determination. Are you a saint? 
And if that is the answer, then stand on it. Stop calling yourself a sinner. Stop calling yourself a sinner. Declare the good news of Jesus Christ over your life that, yeah, I stumble in many ways and I am a saint. Thanks be to God. Who will save me from this body of death? The Apostle Paul echoes in Romans 7. Thanks be to God. If you are created by God and adopted into his family, this means that you also have a calling, you have a mission, you have a place and a purpose, which brings forward a question. What am I to do? How am I to live? Sometimes we like to use the language of calling. Or, uh, I think calling can sound overly spiritual and idealized and definitely subjective. Whether we name it calling or whether we name it meaning or whether we name it purpose, the view of calling in the Bible is always oriented to a purpose, to a mission, and it always comes from someone exterior to you. You don't call yourself if you live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He calls you. And so God called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He called Moses. He called Joshua. Jesus called his disciples and calls his disciples. Therefore, he calls you. So we ask in light of why I exist, that I should seek God and grasp my way toward him and find him and that I am a new creation, truly remade by Jesus Christ, not my own effort. In light of all of that, what does Jesus want my life to be about? Notice how different this question is than just doing whatever is right in your own eyes. What does Jesus want my life to be about? Do you ask that question? What does the Lord Jesus, the Lord of all, want my life to be about? Are we seeking to be people of consequence, living under the authority of Jesus, or are we living as individuals who will bear the consequences of our own self-direction? A guy, a theologian and pastor in the 1800s, a guy named D.L. Moody said, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. Our greatest fear shouldn't be a failing, but it's just aiming at the wrong thing and shooting for the moon. At this stage in your life, are you aiming to be who your creator and redeemer has created you to be, or are you succeeding at things that truly do not matter, things of little or no consequence? Dudes in the room, are you floating? Are you floating? Aimless? Without purpose? Goofing off until all hours of the night? not taking responsibility for the families that you lead, not taking responsibility for the money that you have borrowed, not taking responsibility for the things that people have graciously given you? Are you floating? Or are you a man of consequence? Or will you step into being a man of consequence? Jesus is concerned with our fidelity. That is that word just previously, yes, aimed at the men, but also applies to our women. On the whole, Jesus Christ is aimed at our fidelity. Fidelity is a word that means loyalty. The U.S. Marines' motto is semper fidelis, which means always faithful or always loyal. 
Loyal to what? Loyal to who? Every Marine can answer that question without a thought. Marines know why they're enlisted, they know their job, they know their mission, and they know who they report to. And we should lift that motto. Jesus is all about our loyalty. Listen to how he himself lived. He's not a man who is unwilling, the God who is man, he is not unwilling to live this out before us as an example. He would say in John chapter six, I I have come down from heaven to do what? To do my own will? No, to do the will of God who sent me not to do my own will. Those are his words. That sounds like speech from a man of consequence. Do you know the will of his father that Jesus was speaking of? What that will of the father was? Jesus gives the answer in John 6, 39 and 40. He says this, he says, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of those that he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. What that means is that Jesus is responsible for a people. For this is the will of my father that everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up, her up on that last day. So that's the will of the Father for Jesus Christ. But what about the will of the Father for you and I? What's his will for us? What makes us people of consequence who are loyal to him above everyone and everything? Second Corinthians chapter five. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. The same message that brought us into the family is to be the message in our mouths, calling a world to repentance and reconciliation to repentance, reconciliation, and rejoicing, because rejoicing is always the fruit of reconciliation. All of life, we exist to saturate the inland Northwest and the nations with the good news of our glorious King. How do we aim to do that? Through the formation of wholehearted disciples and life-giving relationships. Why? so that every man, woman, and child who Jesus gives us, brings to us, to you today, sends us to, that's the people that you are caring for in your world, so that every man, woman, and child that Jesus gives us or sends us to is seen, known, loved, and gospeled well. To the praise of God's glorious grace. Now, in conclusion, remember, I, I, I use the term person of consequences a way to describe a person who bears good fruit through a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. So to be a person of consequence is to sequence important attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs together in such a way that accurately corresponds with what God is like. A person of consequence not only shares what God is like, but in our human limitations also shows what he's like and shows what he does, shows how he is. We're the aroma of Christ to the people around us. People of consequence are people of conviction. 
They are those who are not living according to what is right in their own eyes, but who feel a strong degree of responsibility for and to those around them. People of consequence are those who embrace and who learn about and lean into the ministry that Jesus has generously granted us, the ministry of reconciliation. All of life, seeing lost men, women, and children reconciled to God through Christ is your ministry, our ministry. And it's of utter consequence. Will you embrace it at the invitation of Jesus? In your human limitations, and all of your quirk and imperfections, will you embrace the invitation of Jesus to embrace this mission that just hangs over your life and will never expire? and will bring benefit to all of the people in your orbit, whether they accept it or like it or not? Will you aim the direction of your life at their benefit? Our opportunity as wholehearted disciples is to share and to show the real Jesus to a world grasping at false alternatives. People around you are searching, trying to find meaning, and God has uniquely placed you near them. So, in light of all of that, what does it look like for you right now, just in silence, to, to identify, like, who are the people that I'm regularly bumping up against? Who are the people that I'm regularly with? Who are the people that my heart just leans toward, just wanting them to taste and see the goodness of Jesus Christ? Can I invite you to like record their name in this moment in your memory? Maybe it's multiple people, but I want to invite you just right now to pray for them where you are. I want to just invite you to pray for them, and I want to invite you to pray for you. God would uniquely use you, would give you patience and endurance to pursue and to live into this calling of being ministers of reconciliation. This is not just for pastor guy. This is for the whole church. I exist to equip you and to push you out into ministry. That's my role. And to do it myself in my own spheres, to practice what I preach. So let's just take a moment. Just where you are, let the room be silent. It's okay. If there are little kids kind of murmuring about, that's fine too. Who are those people? Pray for them. Pray for yourself. Here's what I want. I want you to pray for the person to your right. I just, you don't need to know their name or know who they are. Just where you are silently, I just want you to ask God to reveal to them 
the people and to equip them to bear fruit. You just pray for the people to your right. Simple words, God hears our prayers. Same thing, the people to your left. Father, everyone in this room who calls you Lord has been given a mission and a purpose. And thanks be to Jesus Christ that we do not bear the weight of saving people. That is not on us. It's on you. You are the one who calls graciously and generously. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. And you call us as your kids up into your mission and you, you, you give us opportunity and you use means. And so you want to show and to share with the world the goodness of who you are through us. You've invited us in. You don't just sequester us off on the side and say, no, no, no. But you pull us right into the story that you are writing. I am here because someone stepped toward me. And so is everyone else in this room. So Holy Spirit, make us, fill us as people of power and courage. Free us to speak with boldness, like the Apostle Paul said, as we ought. To generously give ourselves up for the good of others, understanding our human limitations, repenting where we fail and falter and fear. Would you do a work through us? Would you give us a heart for not just the nations, but our community? And move us outward to serve and to love them well. To your glorious grace.